0: Welcome to How We Win, the official podcast of The Persistence.
1: Action is the best antidote for anxiety, and we can all make a difference right now.
0: Today we discuss the economy, our economic recovery, how strong it is, and how people actually feel about it. And uh, McCarthy just launched an impeachment inquiry.
1: And joining us for our interview for a really interesting conversation about land use and parking is the author of Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World.
0: I'm Steve Pearson.
1: I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And and this this is is How We
0: win. Win. Really? It's gonna be a really interesting conversation about land use and parking. (laughs) I know, cool. exciting. I know. You don't get you don't get this at you know the five o'clock hour on on the MSNBCs. You don't you know, but you should. I know. You should. This is actually (laughs) a really interesting. um, You know, we have a a a housing issue all over our country. It's it's you know. very dire here in our home state of California where we're recording this. And, um, you know, we don't often think about parking in relation to that issue. And this is a uh, really interesting book and, uh, and an expert on this. So I, uh, so if you're, you know, a little reticent to join us for the interview about land use and parking, don't be. You're going to love it.
1: It's very, I mean, land use is very subversive, really. It's It yeah. underpins everything, so... I loved, I loved it. So how are you doing, Steve? Happy 200th episode.
0: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, we should have some sound effects for that. 200 episodes. I'm feeling very nostalgic uh, after, you know, four plus years of doing this show. Um, I, I can't believe we've done 200 episodes. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about it Uh In our reasons for hope, because when I look back on all the work we've done over 200 episodes of the show, it gives me a lot of hope. Um, But um, I'm just glad uh, for everyone that's been here, all of our listeners and and grateful for you, Jennifer, and and your contribution uh, over these last. Um, gosh, I don't know how long it's been, months. A couple and months. Of years,
1: right? I a, don't know, at least a year. Have you been on for a couple of years? <laughs> at least a year. <laughs> feels like a couple of years. Where does the I time
0: think... go? Ouch. Okay, I'll take it. <laughs> That's fair.
1: No, not in a bad way. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, Just it's a lot of work, you know, that we've done in the last year. So it feels like
0: Yes, yeah, it does. And speaking yeah. of the work, I, I guess we have some work to do around um the economy, the uh, what is actually happening with the economy, and what people feel is happening with the economy, right?
1: yes and it is manifesting in a lot of the stories that we saw last week about biden's polling the you know biden being tied with trump when you're looking at the 2024 race and that i think spurred a lot more stories and analysis about what is driving that certainly when in those polls you can see um how people feel about the economy is driving a lot of the kind of tightness in the in these polls and there's been an overall I think reality that the economic policies that Biden has put and Democrats have Mm -hmm. put into place are starting to take effect. Um, But people are still feeling very pinched, and people are not actually feeling the effects of that as much. Combined with the same, at the same time, there's basically zero good news about Biden and Democrats has really broken through almost in this past year, despite all of the things that they've actually done. And so it's just created this dynamic that is really tough to get out of. And one of the one of the challenges um, is that it's like no one is really working to give Biden and Democrats credit. You you see how it works on the right. Whenever they yeah. do something, they're in absolute lockstep. They're all shouting from the rooftops across every you know thing that they control, shouting how great it was and how they were in charge and how they did it. And on our side, there's a little bit of a dynamic where, you know, the right wing media is attacking Biden. The mainstream media thinks that they have to be balanced in both sides. And so they're not really giving Biden credit. And then sometimes the left doesn't even give Biden or Dems credit because they feel like, you know, it wasn't, didn't go far enough. So all of that adds up to, like a tough dynamic where no one's giving credit and nothing has broken through. And it's just one of the challenges that we face as we head into 2024.
0: Yeah, it's really challenging. And we talk, you know, I mean, we've been talking about this since, uh, you know, we pushed for all this great legislation and got, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act done and the bipartisan infrastructure bill and, uh, you know, $40 yeah. uh, billion dollars in investment uh, on climate. And, you know, like just some incredible transformative legislation, the most impactful president since FDR, certainly in my lifetime. And, you um, you know, we, we keep talking about it, but uh, man, I was uh, sitting watching the news with Melinda and uh, and they were just all about Trump and all about Biden's mm. age and they just don't learn. They just don't learn. They're always going to go for that shiny thing and, um, yeah. you know, it's deeply concerning Um and I, I just hope, like you said, this, this, uh, you know, overreach to try to be fair, quote, fair and balanced and cover both sides when, um, you know, the Republicans are, are happy to take credit for, um, for these projects coming into their districts that they voted against. You know, they'll do it. But, um, um, you know, I, I guess yeah. you, you, you've been working a lot on messaging around this. And, um, you know, we definitely have a role to play. Uh, We do on this show and we do just as individuals in our communities and with whatever circles we have on social media, whatever, to get that message out there. So what, what what are the messages that are resonating that we can keep pushing?
1: Yeah, well, I think that there's a little bit more to figure out just in terms of the overarching frame. But it is clear that part of what is hurting Trump is things like abortion and concerns about democracy. So continuing to uplift those messages around, you know, the need we need to protect our freedoms, like elevating how extreme the right the mm-hmm. GOP with Trump at the helm has become on these things, taking away our freedoms bringing abortion to the forefront, keeping abortion on the forefront, that is definitely hurting Trump. Um, When it comes to Biden, we know that um, questions about age are are hurting Biden. And we're we're experimenting with, you know, we are actually experimenting with different ways to talk about this right now. One of the things that um, we saw in some polling kind of recently that was interesting is just like, acknowledging, which you actually see Biden doing like you've seen him doing that lately where he's like, yeah, I'm making little jokes about it and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, just it's just acknowledging. And there was um, a, a sort of a statement that was like, Biden may be old, but, he, you know, he has done this and he has done that and he's been so effective. You know, you saw that ad that they put out around his trips to Kiev and uh, how many hours he had to fly on the plane and how to, it, I don't know if you saw that ad, but there was a, a great ad from the Biden campaign that was like a one minute ad about like how rigorous the trip was to go there and like, you know, to the front lines of the war. Yeah. And it just showed it without, it's a show not tell, like without saying, hey, Biden's not too old to be president. It's like, look at Biden being president, being very effective, you know, kind of embodying and manifesting that. So that's kind of interesting. I do think there's something about just like, yeah, he may be old and he's like the most effective president we've ever seen. Look, he's healthy. He's 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 doing it. You know, he's he's doing the job so he can continue experience to do
0: experience matters. I think, you know, um, there's a double edged sword that we face right now um, where uh, we certainly I, I get excited about uh, young candidates uh, and young people jumping in who are doing you know great yeah. things like, you know, uh, on the one extreme. I guess we have Maxwell Frost who was on our show who was the youngest, uh, person to serve in Congress and who is, uh, so exciting and has such an excellent future ahead of him. And, and I, I think we spend so much time doing that, you know, um, yeah, you know, we don't want to discredit the uh, you know incredible benefits of age and experience. You know that yeah, that comes wisdom. With that. wisdom. That's what Biden yeah.
1: said. That I think last week that I thought was interesting. It's like yeah, well, it comes with a little bit of wisdom, and maybe that's something we need right now. So yeah, so that's interesting. And then, I mean, on talking about the accomplishments, it is true. I mean, it's like. It's not a silver bullet. You know, just talking about what we've done isn't enough because there's too many other problems that people are facing in the economy. The economy is still really deeply unfair and people yeah. are struggling with it. So it it doesn't necessarily overcome those things. But what we have found is, you know, being as specific and concrete as you can. So rather than talking maybe about a lot of macro ideas about the economy, When you talk about specific things like lowering the cost of insulin to $35 or Mm. lowering people's energy bills by X percentage, you know, amount each month, like that kind of thing is specific. And then the other thing that's been working really well is just, you know, finding testimonials, people in the country who are actually, you know, in the new factories that are getting built, like getting these new jobs that are part of the infrastructure. That'd be
0: helpful. Yeah. And
1: that is helpful just to show like real people talking about it. So... Those are some of the things we yeah. found.
0: I feel like for so long we've had to, like when we talk about a reco- economic recovery that's very real and, mm-hmm. um, you know, unemployment down, inflation down, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there's more jobs, more opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. It's really tough to talk to folks who are struggling in their lives still. Like, you know, housing costs are up. You yeah. know, uh, you know, healthcare care um, isn't there for everybody. People are still making choices between buying food and buying medicine, you know. Um, yeah. And uh, and when you have folks who are really struggling like that, you can come at them with all the facts in the world about how much better the economy is doing. It doesn't change a single fact about how they feel and about their, their day-to-day lives. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's tough. And, and I, I like how you um, artfully pivoted to, um, you know, uh, protecting our freedoms and messaging and saving our democracy, because there was a point in the last midterm elections where for the first time that I can remember, uh, Protecting our freedoms, saving democracy was the number one issue people were pulled about. And then the economy was after that. Like Carville all used mm-hmm. to say, it's the economy, stupid. It's always about what, you yeah. know, people's wallets. But um, protecting uh, our our democracy was number one. And I think we can still lean into that because um, yeah, it resonates now. And especially when you have these MAGA Republicans doing stuff. Stupid things like opening up an impeachment inquiry on Biden now.
1: Yeah. Let me take the words out of Biden's
0: mouth. Come on, man.
1: (laughs) What a bunch of malarkey. What a bunch
0: of. No, I mean it. I'm I'm not kidding. Not kidding. I mean it.
1: (laughs) Wow, you do a pretty good Biden. (laughs) No, I'm serious. I'm serious. (laughs) Serious, man. No, it's true. It's kind of ridiculous. I mean, I guess he did it without even taking a vote. He just like unilaterally announced it today that he was (laughs) doing an impeachment um, investigation. So it's a lot of shenanigans up there with impeachments and government shutdowns. That dude has
0: zero spine. He is the most feckless asshole in Congress (laughs) right now. Like there are people who are just awful – MAGA extremists who just want to run everything to the ground, right? But there's yeah. also people who could stand up to that, who could who are in a position uh, to, uh, if they're not going to right the ship, at least push back on that. And McCarthy yeah. is that person, and he has no spine, no backbone. He's completely feckless, and he's just you know, caved to the worst of the Republican Party. And he will go down in history as, I think, hopefully the one that has, you know, put the last nail in the coffin of this MAGA Republican Mm. faction.
1: Absolutely. I mean, may it be so. Yeah, he's he's one of the worst examples, as you say, because he doesn't he' just not even clear if he even believes it. he's just a tool. He doesn't believe in anything except
0: for his own desire to be in
1: power <laughs> his own job yeah yeah, exactly it's it is it is kind of the worst. It is almost worse than someone who actually does believe it, I guess yeah it's just terrible. So yeah, that's happening. And I don't think it's going to have any real effect, although it's just a con- it's just their continued distraction and not doing anything to help the American people. Um, But I think we can we can take a little bit of a message guidance from from Senator Fetterman and and how he reacted. Did you see that clip?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think um, when we talk about how we should feel about this and our response, we should take our cue from Senator Fetterman. Let's go ahead and play his response right now
2: about this can news you, that uh, speaker mccarthy it? has formally launched an impeachment in has said heard. he's going to oh my direct. god
0: really oh my gosh you know oh it's devastating <laughs> Ooh, don't do it please don't do it, oh, it. Oh, oh no oh no
1: yeah and that's it it's like great <laughs> keep more power, too, yeah, like good luck with that,, yeah, yeah that's kind of the vibe, I guess there's from
0: one that. party that's standing up for people that is really working mm-hmm. to uh, improve the lives of people. and there's another party that's just standing up for themselves and trying to distract and create culture wars, and uh, it's so egregious and disgusting, but um,, uh, let's just go ahead and laugh at this attempt because it is laughable.
1: it is, yeah. It's a real choice for sure.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about our to-do list. Uh, there is a worldwide climate strike. This Friday, the 15th, there's a uh, a worldwide climate strike. You can find different protests, mobilizations, demonstrations, and all kinds of stuff happening in your country. I know there's folks all over the world listening to this show. Um, So reach out to your local youth climate movement and stand up for climate justice. Let your voice be heard. Demand accountability from world leaders, policymakers, and multinational companies for ignoring the climate crisis. And uh, see you get out on the streets. We can get back out on the streets and and do these kinds of actions. Uh, We're going to have a link to FridaysForFuture.org. They are leading this, um, coalition, uh, and we'll have that link on there. It's Fridays dot Um, and, cool. uh, and I hope you join, uh, you know, join the kids who are, uh, who are leading the way on this and, uh, you know, they shouldn't have to be doing this, but they're, uh, deeply concerned about their future because, um, yeah. you know, they should be.
1: Um, the other thing, I don't actually have a, an actual action step, but just to flag in case people have not been tracking, you know, the big victory that we had in Wisconsin earlier this year where we elected uh, Judge Janet as mm-hmm. this, you know, deciding vote. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Speaking well, there's of, a lot of shenanigans. <laughs> speaking so, of
0: impeachment bullshit. There's yeah, the now the right
1: wing— Exactly. I mean, they're not even going to go through the step of impeaching her because that would have too much backlash. They're just going to start the impeachment inquiry, which means that she'll be suspended from cases she won't be able to vote. And the two cases that they're going to bring in that time are, of course, gerrymandering and abortion, which were the cases that drove her election. Yeah. So it's a real mess. Um, and I know Ben Wickler and our friends up there at the Wisconsin Dem Party are trying to figure out what to do. So we will probably have um, more action steps coming, but just people to be aware. Stay That's tuned happening. from
0: Ben. Yeah. And uh, and she's fighting. being impeached because of some egregious uh, decisions she made on some court cases. Is right oh wait she hasn't <laughs> she hasn't presided over a single case yet no
1: it's like something she said during the campaign that that is not even remotely <laughs> an impeachable offense and they're just taking and running with it because that's what they do yeah yeah um so anyway we'll be back for more but for now yes. climate strike
0: yes yes um well let's talk about our reasons for hope um Gosh, I don't want to go on too long because I have a couple, actually. Okay. But one yeah. in relation to the um, uh, our climate strike happening on Friday here in California, uh, and I talk about California a lot. I know I'm running for the assembly and Cal- <laughs> it's all California now. But this uh, is an example of how powerful the uh, California legislature is in making policy that really affects the whole nation and the world um, we just passed uh, Senate Bill 253, uh, which is a basic transparency bill that would mandate emissions reporting for billion-dollar companies doing business in California. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is really transformative because, of course, we are the fourth-largest economy in the world. So, uh All businesses in the country and really worldwide are doing business with California, and this mandates that they have to calculate and um, present their carbon footprint. But oh. I'm just—I'm really excited about this bill because um, it's going to create accountability. Some uh, many companies are already doing this. This had the support of Apple. Uh, Google came on board supporting it um, at the last minute. Um, but uh, it—it's going to create a- mm-hmm. accountability, and now it just goes to uh, Governor Newsom's desk to sign. And um, you know, it goes beyond what the federal government has done in terms of keeping uh, companies accountable for uh, meeting our climate goals. And um, uh, it's it's really exciting. It gives me wow. a lot of hope. Um, and then, like, my part two of reasons for hope mm-hmm. is just looking back, like I said, over 200 episodes at how far we've all come and the work that we've done together. It's mm-hmm. it's difficult when we have such dire times, and every election just is so important. And you know, uh, Trump somehow is still around, you know, dominating the news cycles, and um, you know, we're we're fighting to get our message out there and and it feels it, it can feel discouraging but when we look at the arc certainly just of this show mm-hmm. and the 200 episodes we've done and the incredible activists and leaders who have been on the front lines you know making change and and fighting to protect our democracy um, you know we we've been winning we've been on a winning streak and um, uh, even though we've we've you know, Taken some casualties on that battlefield, um, we are moving forward together, and it gives me a tremendous amount mm-hmm. of hope for um, for what we have ahead of us and the work that we still have yet to do. So, um, that's those are two things that give me a lot of hope, even though the environment's super dire and democracy is on a razor's edge. Why do I end my reasons with hope, with <laughs> negative stuff like that? <laughs> but. <yeah. laughs>
1: I know I know. well that's really cool. I love that I love both of those. Um, actually I was remembering there was something that I saw um, this week or last week about uh, Louisiana there um, it was a kind of a criminal justice victory where um, and I've been thinking about Louisiana a lot as kind of part of our long-term southern strategy but um, and they've got elections this year too but um, a federal judge ordered, some young people who were incarcerated um, f- in like a real f- adult prison in like a former death row building—it was like a maximum security prison—and these advocates had been fighting for these kids to be to be ta- released and taken from there. And the, a federal judge just um, went ahead and vo- you know um, ruled in their favor. And so nice. by the end of this week, those kids are going to be able to be removed from those harmful conditions and. You know, it's a small thing, but it's like this criminal justice work in the South It's is the South is just the place where more and more people are incarcerated than, you know, um, like per capita than any other place. And so it's like part of our fight uh, in building a different kind of South to push for this kind of change. So I was glad to see that.
0: That's great. Yeah. I like to hear, you know, good positive change coming out of states like Louisiana. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I love Louisiana. You know, um, New Orleans is one of the great, great <laughs> cities of, sure. in, in our country. So it's good to see that. Um, all right. Well, that's it for us. Now I'm really excited, as I said, for stimulating, exciting interview about land use and parking with Henry Grabar. Henry Grabar is a staff writer at Slate, where he writes the Metropolis column with a focus on housing, transportation, and the environment. His work has also been published in Architect, The Atlantic, The Guardian, Harper's, The Wall Street Journal, and other outlets. And he's produced podcasts for Decoder Ring, 99% Invisible – What Next, and other shows. He was the editor of the Future of Transportation anthology, and most recently is the author of Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World, which was just published in May. Henry, thank you so much for being here.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to talk about your book, and uh, but I like to get a little origin story in there first. Um, you've made your career now as an expert on housing and transportation. Uh, what drew you to this work and how did you get started?
2: Well – In a way, you could think of parking as lying at the intersection of housing and transportation. So um, it's perhaps natural, given my interest in in land use and in transportation policy, uh, that I would wind up thinking about parking, um, which is really where those two fields intersect. To take your question back a little further, why I wound up interested in, in those things in the first place, I think it's in part a result of having grown up in New York City in the 1990s when um, the city was changing so rapidly. So many people were moving in, and the actual fabric of the city was undergoing such rapid change. That I felt like at that time, it was very easy to become interested in cities, how they change and how they grow and how people's experience of them relates to the quality of the built infrastructure and the built environment.
0: Yeah, I grew up in D.C., and as a as a kid growing up in D.C., much the same way it was for you in New York, you know, we had access to everything because we have a great uh, public transit and subway system. And um, I was on my bike and uh, on the subway even in middle school, uh, going everywhere. And um, you know, now I live in Los Angeles, and it's a very very different different way of life here, a different story. So. Um, Right now, we're, we're dealing with the housing crisis, uh, obviously, that's sadly evident in all of our cities. And like I said, here in California, um, the largest group of people who are experiencing homelessness right now are senior citizens, followed by uh, single moms and their kids. Um, we don't often think about parking in relation to our housing crisis, but um, can you talk about how parking requirements can limit access to housing and, and increase the costs of rent?
2: I think there's two interesting things to say about the connection between parking and the housing crisis. The first, and perhaps the most obvious, is that by requiring so much parking to be constructed with every single uh, home or apartment building, which is the law in uh, most places in the United States, has been a law in California for many decades, although it has lately – those requirements have lately been uh, reduced by by a state bill Mm -hmm. – But regardless, uh, for many decades, the requirement was that for every single housing unit you built, you had to include a certain number of parking spaces. And the thinking there was that we really, um, there was nothing we wanted less from our communities than to have spillover parking as people moved into uh, apartments that hadn't been furnished with the uh, proper amount of parking spaces. And I think we've been largely successful (laughs) in avoiding uh, the spillover parking crisis that's not ranked highly as um, maybe like the number one concern in the United States. But as you say, we've we've totally failed to build enough affordable housing. And, And those two things are related because parking costs a lot of money to build and it takes up a lot of space. And if it weren't required, a lot of builders wouldn't build so much parking. And and so we've basically decided that parking is more important than housing. Parking is required by law, whereas housing is usually limited in the amount you're uh, permitted to provide in a certain place. And as a result, we've wound up with a surplus of parking and a shortage of housing.
1: Mm-hmm. It's really very clear like where the priorities are. I guess I would I wanted to jump in and ask just from a thinking of a from a political standpoint, what do you explore as the political origins of that? And do you see the potential for kind of a new kind of politics around it? We don't, I think we don't often uh, in our progressive world, actually take land use into consideration as an import, as such an important political issue than others that we prioritize. And so I'm just curious how you think about that question.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think when you want to talk about the origins of it, I think the answer is that there was a time in this country where many cities thought that the difficulty of finding a parking space on the street was actually the number one problem facing their Um, their urban design, their governance, et cetera, which is kind of shocking to our eyes. But that was indeed the way city leaders thought about downtowns in the 1950s and 60s. And that's one of the reasons that they put this burden on builders of requiring all this parking. And you see this, the result of that today, where you'll often see apartments even for Formerly homeless individuals, for example, groups that are not likely um, to have super high rates of car ownership, um, and yet we're spending most of the money that's being allotted towards taking care of them, uh, or not most, but a lot is going into uh, building these huge garages that, that go unused, and you see this constantly. Mm. The other thing that has happened um, since then uh, is y- you ask about the um, the emergence of a sort of politics around this issue, and I think. What I've seen since I started reporting this book and and since it's come out is that there are really two um, origin points for people being interested in parking as a political issue and in thinking about the ways in which through law and through custom we've prioritized the provision of parking over um, so many other important things such as providing enough affordable housing. Um, and I think the two, the two origin points points for that are are number one concern about the housing crisis right because um, if you're if you become concerned uh, that we don't have enough housing then parking begins to jump out at you as this extremely wasteful uh, required use that that is just ripe for reform and so a lot of the activism around land use and parking comes from people who are concerned about housing and the second one is climate because Mm -hmm. transportation is our largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States and parking and the provision of free parking is closely related to how much people drive and how people choose to get around. And so when you create a society that is, you know, 50 percent parking by land area in some places, um, you you basically condemn everybody who's visiting that place um, to drive there. Yes, you provide free parking, but you make it impossible to get there any other way. And so I think those twin concerns of housing and climate have become more and more prominent in recent years in, in local political debates. And I think uh, parking is sort of the answer to both of them. Hmm.
0: You've addressed, I'm sure, some of it, but I want to talk about your uh, your book more specifically, Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. Why did you write it? And what do you want readers to take from it?
2: Well, so my day job is that I've I'm a reporter at Slate and I write about city issues. And I began to see parking cropping up in every single subject that I tackled. Obviously, it comes up in transportation because it's a major predictor of whether people will drive or not or whether they will own cars or not. But of course, as I've been talking about, it comes up a lot in housing debates, but it also comes up in places you might not expect, like it's a major... because it's a major component of the urban landscape, it's a major feature of cities environments. And so the amount of parking we have can shape um, an urban floodplain. It can determine the nature of an urban heat island. It can um, shape the amount of water, uh, determine the amount of water that gets absorbed by aquifers and how much goes into stormwater runoff. I mean, so it began to seem to me as I was doing my reporting um, the parking was just coming up over and over again in every single subject um, and that it would serve us well, perhaps to think about it comprehensively um, rather than just thinking about it as it comes up in each of these um, sort of silos. Uh, and I think that I hope that's one of the takeaways people get have from the book. I'm not telling people that they need to uh, place less importance on uh, finding a good parking spot. That decision is up to each of us individually and as communities, but merely to see that there have been enormous trade-offs that we have made uh, with things that we purport to care about uh, in order to to make sure there is enough parking. And I hope that's the takeaway that readers come away with.
1: I know you did a ton of research uh, going into this book, and I'm just curious if there was like, I know there oh, what you've already said has been um, kind of informative to me, but is there something that really struck you or that really stuck, stood out to you that was surprising or you know, like a, a particular piece of this story that you found has stuck with you the most?
2: I think one of the most surprising things for me is how much it costs to build parking. I think many of us think of parking as being sort of wasted space um, because it's often the last thing that's left over. When a building gets demolished and so you see in deteriorating places that um, it almost seems to be the lowest form of land use before um, total abandonment and so there's a sense that oh well it's cheap but in fact it's not cheap at all it's extremely expensive to build Mm -hmm. Um, and even surface lots can cost you know five thousand dollars a space structured parking in a garage in most cities now costs upwards of $30,000 $30, of space and underground parking can cost um, into the six figures. Now, I want to put those numbers in context. When you are building an affordable housing building in a state like California, and you are obligated to provide two parking spaces with every unit, you are therefore adding on if that parking is going into a garage, potentially $100,000 onto the cost of every single unit just in parking costs. And would the tenants pay $100,000 for a couple of parking spaces if they were given the choice? Surely not. They would rather um they would rather have that apartment built for for 25% less, um which is in fact what according to a government accountability office study what uh, that required parking and structured garages adds on to the cost of housing. So that was a great surprise to me. And and you see that in commercial parking too, right? Like a lot of the garages that we use in urban downtowns were created um, as a result of requirements. Now, it's not that developers won't build them on their own. They will often because they perceive them as being um, an amenity uh, without which they'll be unable to rent commercial space or right. attract luxury condo buyers, etc. Um, So they do build the garages. But w- What you realize is that they almost never pay for themselves. There's almost no place in the United States where people are willing to pay enough for parking to make parking pencil out as a use case, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why it's required by law because it's really expensive to build and nobody ever wants to pay for it.
0: Yeah. And there's wow. some interesting legislation. You touched on it a little bit, but um, also to separate out, uh, especially for renters, um, the cost of, of parking into their rental units. Because, uh, you know, some rentals, especially if you're building near transit um, and, and folks uh, choose not to have cars, which is a great way to live if you can do it, um, yeah. it, you know, they don't, you know, need to pay for that parking spot that they're not using either. You know, that's not equitable so there's lots of good ideas. You also talked about in your book um, how COVID transformed our parking areas into, you know, usable spaces, and of course how outdoor dining has transformed some areas into just new vibrant hubs that we didn't have before. Do you think this is uh, a paradigm shift that we're going to be able to sustain in a post-COVID world to have, to, you know, reclaim some of that uh, tarmac for, uh, you know, for community?
2: I I wonder about that. I mean, I I feel like on the one hand, it does seem to have moved the Overton window. And I now talk to people, even during COVID, when I was writing this book, we would be sitting out in some outdoor dining patio. And I would say to people, you like, see, this is what I'm talking about. This is (laughs) what I'm talking about when I say that there is this arbitrage between the value of this space when it's used for parking which is zero or maybe like 25 50 cents an hour and the value of this space when it's used for something else Mm -hmm. which just in the sales tax alone that gets generated by one of these little restaurant patios you're talking Mm -hmm. um you know tens of dollars an hour and maybe maybe a lot more than that depending on the type of business it is um that said you know there's obviously been a lot of retrenchment since then i think as drivers have um sort of taken back what they Feel is rightfully theirs, um, so you know. I think it's it's going to be a slow road for sure. But I guess the the optimistic case is that people have seen what's possible, and I don't think they'll forget that. I think the other the other component I want to add about the post COVID landscape is um, there's a lot of empty garage space downtown because uh, downtown right. office occupancy in a lot of places remains far below what it was. Um, before COVID. And I, I think that represents a huge opportunity because one of the concerns people have when we talk about building housing without parking is, well, where will they park? Because the assumption is always that people will come with cars, they'll park them on the street. They will compete with me for my parking space that I've been uh, using on the curb for generations before that building got built and so on. And so what you have with these unused downtown garages is an opportunity to to share the parking that's already been built. And so new residential occupants can bring their cars and they can park them in those unused uh, office garages. And, and that's a wonderful symbiotic relationship because the office workers are there from nine to five and the residents are there from five to nine. And so you can really make double use out of those garage spaces. And mm. it's, it's kind of one of these synergies you can unlock in a, in a big city. and. Um, I'd like to see more cities trying to make use of what is now a pretty underused asset.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was another question, which is kind of like there's policies that could change this and then there's also culture that needs to change probably around this. And so I would just love to hear you talk about your ideas around both of those things. Like, what do you think really needs to change in the culture for us to be able to do things differently?
2: I mean, the gold standard policy reform right now and the one that's been undertaken in um, California and Oregon, Washington, number of cities across the country is to stop requiring a certain amount of parking with every single land use because that is, you you know, again, developers will always build parking for luxury apartments because high income clients are going to want parking spaces with their unit. But when it comes to building affordable housing, when it comes to building senior housing, when it comes to building housing for the formerly homeless, the obligation to provide parking is a massive impediment, and it's really holding us back mm. um, from, from meeting the the goals that we've set for ourselves. So that's that's really the gold standard reform is, is to stop requiring that and let the market decide um, how much parking gets built. Um, now, in terms of culture, um, I think this is really challenging because people have a really fierce attachment to their parking spots. And I've noticed that um, even in neighborhoods where the parking situation is not Uh, really that uh, tight, people will often uh, see new neighbors as a threat to their parking. And that's like the primary way they perceive them. You know, it's like, you know, it's not like, oh, am I going to have a new friend next door? Is my kid going to have a new, uh, you know, a new second baseman on the T-ball team? It's like, these people are going to take my parking spot. (laughs) And (laughs) I guess um, that seems that seems like a bad development to me. And I would Mm -hmm. love I would love for people to begin to just rethink, or maybe just like pause to assess the um, the way that they've assembled the the things that they think are are most important. Because again, we do not really have much of a parking crisis in this country, but we really do have a housing crisis.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. In the opening of your book, you talk about. Uh, the uh, episode in Seinfeld where uh, uh, George is fighting over a parking spot in front of Jerry's house. And I literally just, on un- happenstance, had just watched that episode like minutes before I picked up your book for the first time. So, um, you know, the, the the parking wars are real. But, you know, uh, I, I do think that we are starting to change our relationship uh, around it uh, and certainly understanding the you know the urgency we need to act environmentally on on transportation and um uh so i'll just leave you here with the last question that we ask all of our guests and that's what gives you hope for our future right now
2: <laughs> is that too pregnant let me take a long pregnant <laughs> pause you can edit it out. Are right? you
0: there? <laughs> it's <laughs> a lot of people pause at that question because um you know it's you know, it's a tough time to to ask that, and I should say also, I I talked about a post COVID world when we're having a a surge right now too, so I don't want to be irresponsible in my conversation about that. But anyway, uh, having thrown COVID into that no, as well, uh, what's giving you hope?
2: Well, I mean, I I want to go back to something I mentioned a moment ago, which is the um, the reform movement, which is spearheaded by a group called the Parking Reform Network. And the work they're doing is to convince towns, cities and even some states to get rid of these requirements um, for providing parking. And those have been those have just been the absolute um, bedrock status quo of American building practices for 60, 70 years. Everything that was built in the last half century has been built according to those laws. And since I started writing this book, I mean, we're talking 2018, um, those laws have been repealed in dozens and dozens of cities and states. And um, the scale of the transformation is astounding. In 2017, there were only two cities that had undone those laws. And now, again, there are almost more than I can count. And that's really reassuring. And when you see those debates happen at the city level, it is, again, a very explicit endorsement of the idea that um, these rules are holding back our ability to, number one, adapt to the climate crisis, and number two, provide affordable housing. Now, often where the rubber meets the road, developers still do wind up providing a lot of parking, in part to um, satisfy the desires of neighbors, again, who you know, are able to often halt housing projects in their tracks if they don't feel enough parking has been provided. But to see that kind of debate happening at the city council level across the country is pretty heartening. And I think it signals that maybe we're on the cusp of a generational shift in terms of how we um, stack up our priorities for the urban landscape.
0: That's great. Mm -hmm. That is hopeful.
1: Hey, can I ask another really quick thing? I was, um, I don't know if you saw that, um, there's a new community called California Forever that is starting in eastern Solano County.
2: It's, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. I was curious if you had a take on that as kind of like, you know, an attempt to sort of start from scratch and create something totally different.
2: You know, I've only seen the renderings that I assume that everyone else has seen. So I don't know too much about it, but I guess what I do think is interesting is that it seems to be a really explicit attempt to um reject the kinds of policies that have characterized the American urban environment for the last few decades and I think um one of the like tragic ironies of the last couple decades is that it's exactly these types of environments like dense multi-use not enough parking um, apartments and commercial spaces sharing buildings and neighborhoods etc these were the kinds of environments that we basically um legislated out of existence in the 1950s and 60s mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they have since become the most valuable places to live in the entire united states and so um that's that's a that's a real That's a real tragedy and i think you see now people realizing that in fact this is what they want from an urban environment Uh, but unfortunately unless you're doing um something you know uh tabula rasa you 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 really um it's hard to, to to hack through the thicket of laws parking minimums are only part of them you know then you have to deal with state dot's right like state departments of transportation who for them any road where people drive less than 50 miles an hour is a policy failure because not moving enough people in cars. And that obviously makes no sense if you're coming from an urban environment, right? Like no kid's going to bike to school on a street where cars are going 50 miles an hour. But that's an example of the way that the policy deck is really stacked uh, in favor of a uh, single family home sprawl. Well,
0: wow, it's so fascinating. Yeah. The book is really great holding it up into the camera like people can see it. But I'll just read it again. <laughs> Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. And, uh, and Henry, thank you so much for uh, joining us. really appreciate your insight.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved.
0: We want to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at howwewinpod.com or find us on social at howwewinpod at bluesboysteve and at jinnancona.
1: Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods and share our show with your friends and family.
0: Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.